in the bulletin to page 9, or you can turn in a copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 2. We are continuing our series, looking through various selections in this wonderful and beautiful book, and we find ourselves in the fourth part this morning, again, turning to Hebrews chapter 2 and looking at verses 14 through 18 together. Again, it's printed for you as well on page 9 in the bulletin. But it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are also being tempted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it remains forever and ever. Amen. If you recall the parable of the prodigal son, as it's recorded for us in Luke 15, there is the younger brother, the one who, if you recall, asks for his inheritance early, asks for it before his father is even near the place of death, which in that culture is the greatest of insults, who then takes his ill-timed wealth and squanders it in the far country, we're told, wasting it on reckless living, prostitutes, satisfying the flesh. The younger brother who wakes up face down in a pig trough, wasted and wandering, completely down on his luck, destitute, and only then has the sense to return. Only then has the sense to make that tail tucked between the legs journey back to his home. But if you remember in Luke 15, the story also features an older brother, the one who appears in every way to be his younger brother's opposite. He was loyal to the father. He was hardworking, industrious, faithful to his calling, an honor to his name, someone who would never have the audacity to ask for an early inheritance, someone who wouldn't have the audacity to, to squander it in that way, to leave home. He was diligent and devoted, and who, if you remember, even when his younger brother returns, was shocked. He was shocked, and he was disgusted even, disgusted that the father didn't write off the younger brother, but instead did something his mind could not even believe. He threw him a party. He threw him a party and embraced him and gave him the seat of honor and welcomed him back, no questions asked. Hold that thought in your mind 
for a moment and remember what we looked at last week in the earlier portion of chapter 2. We were reminded that Jesus Christ is Lord over creation. And as Lord over creation, he entered into it as man, as mankind. He became, as Paul says in his letters, the second Adam, the last Adam, that he might enter into creation and where Adam failed, we read about that in our call to confession in Genesis 3, where Adam failed, Jesus, as the second Adam, might succeed. Where Adam squandered Eden, Jesus was faithful in restoring it. Where Adam was seduced by sin and temptation, Jesus was faithful to the Father. Again, Adam leads all of humanity into sin and rebellion, but Jesus, through his life and death, leads us back into fellowship with God, which is why then the passage we looked at last week in the preceding verses of chapter 2 ended with these quotations from the Psalms and the prophets. You can see them if you have a Bible there in verses 12 and 13. I, Jesus, will tell of your name to my brothers, it says. Behold, I and the children. There's that familial language again. Behold, I and the children that God has given me. And then today's passage. And so hear it again. Since therefore the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. For surely it's not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. What does that mean? He helps humans. He helps mankind. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, Jesus, we learn here, is not just the second Adam, not just the last Adam, who was faithful, again, where the first Adam failed. I've always joked, you've heard me say it before, I've always joked, even with my own parents, you named me Adam? Of all biblical characters, you named me after the guy who led the entire human race into <laughs> damnation? Like, but I would like to believe perhaps they had the second Adam in mind, right? <laughs> They're thinking of how Adam was redeemed, right? But again, the first Adam leads us into rebellion Jesus comes and is the second Adam, the better Adam. But we learn here now in this passage, he is also the better older brother. Jesus is the one who, similar to the older brother in Luke 15, but now on a grander scale, again, the older brother in Jesus is what? He's perfect in every imaginable way. The older brother in Luke 15 might have been a little bit better than his younger brother, but he's still human. Jesus, as the, as the capital O older brother, is perfect in every imaginable way. Can you imagine what it was like to be James, the brother of Jesus, right? Can you hear that? Mary and Joseph, why can't you be more like your brother, right? Why can't you be more like Jesus, okay? Well, he's God. Let's start with that one, huh? Okay? But again... 
Jesus is this older brother, perfect in every imaginable way, faithful and loyal to the Father, never thought of squandering the inheritance, the family name, the legacy. Jesus was obedient to every jot and tittle of the law. Think of the words proclaimed upon him by the Father at his baptism. Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. My beloved Son, in whom there is perfection. And in such perfection, I am well pleased. Think of the words of Christ in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. Again, this perfect obedience to the Father. And in Luke 15, when the younger son became the prodigal, we can only assume that the older brother in that story scoffed. Probably thought to himself, good riddance. It's about time you show your true colors and you get out of here. And he tells his father, I told you so. I told you so about this guy. Rolls his eyes, stares in disbelief. But here, in Hebrews 2, what are we told about Jesus? Jesus, the capital O, capital B, older brother. What does he do for you and for I? He comes running. He comes running. Or maybe to paint a different picture, perhaps in Luke 15, the older brother mourned for a time. Maybe you wondered if he could have done something differently and and redeemed his younger brother. Maybe he had regret or remorse, but we know he didn't have such regret or remorse to actually do anything about it because we know in the story, what does he do? He stays home. He stays put inside the family home. But again, here in Hebrews 2, what does Jesus, the older brother, do? He comes running. He comes running. He leaves, we're told, in a sense, the highest courts of heaven That when we became the wayward sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, Jesus ran. He ran headlong into the fray, into the darkness of creation, into our frailty. It says, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, so he himself likewise partook of the same things. He came after us. He didn't scoff. He didn't say good riddance. He didn't say I told you so. He didn't even rub our nose in the messes or roll his eyes, but rather what happens is he saw us as sheep without a shepherd, and so we're told here again that he came running. He came running to his scattered flock. There's an older Christian song that puts it this way. Mercy came running like a prisoner set free, past all my failures to the point of my need, when the sin that I carried was all I could see, And when I could not reach mercy, mercy came running to me. That's what we're told here as Hebrews 2 unfolds. Jesus, the greater Adam, Jesus, the greater older brother, comes running. But the question that this passage answers is, what form did that running take? What path, in other words, did Jesus run that he might redeem us? I had the privilege uh, a number of years ago when we were still down in Broward serving down there to coach high school cross country for a couple years at the Christian school attached to our church. And before races, we would walk the course as a team. 
And we would try to observe, you know, where are the hills on this course? Where are the, where are the turns? Where does the terrain get a bit trickier? What manner of running will be required at which point in the course? When should you try to pass runners? When should you try to conserve your energy? Again, what path should you take? Well, again, here the author, after establishing that Jesus ran after us and entered the fray, he goes on to detail then what that running looked like and what path he chose to take. And we see three things. We see that first, Jesus ran to us as the liberating trailblazer. Second, he runs to us as a merciful high priest. And then thirdly, he runs to us as a sympathetic helper, a liberating trailblazer, a merciful high priest, and a sympathetic helper. Again, hear the words, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And here's the key, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver us or liberate us, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice those words, deliverance and slavery. There's this exodus language here, is there not? This exodus language, Jesus is the great liberator come to set the captive free. He in fact says that in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are enslaved, those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The manner, we're told here, of his running, the manner of his deliverance, the manner of Christ's liberation for us as the captive is by forging a path through that which was previously impossible to navigate, namely death. To forge a path through that which was formerly supposed to be the end, impossible that through death, it says, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that he might take his best punch and get back up. A good way to think about this, a good picture, is the modern engineering marvel of the Panama Canal. Think about that. Think about that. Prior to its opening in 1914, after decades of attempt and the territory changing hands and much toil, Before that, the only way to to navigate east and west on the globe through these very important trade routes was by sailing, as you know, around the treacherous tip of South America. Cape Horn, right? This treacherous, almost to Antarctica journey, the only way around. And it was the Panama Canal which quite literally blazed a new trail, forged a new path, cut through the land bridge itself and linked east and west trade routes. Again, went through that which previously was impossible to go through and came out on 
the other side. That's the image here of what Christ is doing. He is going through death, that in doing so he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Think about Star Trek and the, the Starship Enterprise boldly going, say it with me, where no man has gone before, right? Okay? That's the image here of what Christ is doing. He doesn't circumnavigate death. He goes through it. He goes through it the same way that Moses went through the Red Sea and by the grace of God rises on the other side. So it is with Christ, the better Adam, the better Moses. He goes through that those of us by faith who trust in him, again, where there was previously darkness and dread and a dead end, might now have life and liberty. And so the question for us is, if this is now who is on our side, if this is who is with us, who promises to never leave us or forsake us, even in the place of death, then what can we not trust him with in this life? What can we not trust him for in this life? All to Jesus I surrender. All to thee I freely give. I will ever love and trust you. In your presence, the great liberator, in your presence, the great trailblazer, I daily live. Jesus is the great trailblazer, the great liberator, charting a path through the darkness of death, but we're also told here that he's uniquely qualified as a merciful and faithful high priest. Hear the words again, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, making propitiation for the sins of the people. The life that Christ lays down at the cross, the atonement he makes as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world, is of course the very artifact, if you will, or the very offering that makes possible to open up a doorway into life through death. But we're told here, and we're told otherwhere, other places in Scripture, that what uniquely qualifies Jesus for that role the reason he could be cast as such in the drama of redemption is precisely because of that dual nature. Because he is both God and man. Just like he blazes a path through that which was formerly impossible, Jesus brings together in his person two natures. What was formerly impossible, if you will. Impossible to unite he brings together in himself, fully human, fully divine. A silly, very silly, very inadequate illustration, don't get me wrong, is what's happening in today's modern baseball game with the phenom for the Los Angeles Angels who is called Shohei Otani, the Japanese player who has come to the major leagues and who is just an absolute superstar in every sense of the word. Ace pitcher, an ERA in the twos, but also cleanup hitter, hits for power. No one has ever played the game like he has played, perhaps with the exception of Babe Ruth, but he is ace pitcher, ace hitter, 
And those two things are usually mutually exclusive you know, if you know baseball, right? The pitcher doesn't bat at all anymore, or he bats at the end of the lineup, but not Shohei Otani. When he's not pitching, they still bat him because he's that good. He brings together these two things that in a baseball player are not supposed to be together, are, are formally thought to be impossible. Again, it's an inferior illustration, but on an infinitely grander scale, so it is with Christ. As man, he can represent us because he is the last Adam. But being fully God, he is incapable of sin. He is perfect, and he can offer the eternally satisfying and perfect sacrifice to atone. In fact, Hebrews will go on to tell us, go on to tell us that precisely because Jesus is both God and man, as a man, he can offer the sacrifice we require as our high priest, but because he is God, he has no need to make time for an offering for himself. He can be 100% devoted to you. 100% focused on making atonement for you. His attention is not divided. It is perfectly aligned and focused on us. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. And again, if he can be trusted to provide for us in this way, provide precisely what we need, and does so by being that perfect mediator, the perfect answer to what both God and man, if you will, require to be reconciled, then again, the question for us this morning, is there anything in this life that he then cannot be trusted with to provide for us? If he provided in that way, perfectly, then how can we even for a moment think he won't provide us with exactly what we need and when we need it in his miraculous and divine way? You see, he's the liberating trailblazer. He's the merciful high priest. And then finally in this passage, we see that he is the sympathetic helper. It says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, this is verse 18, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The intent here, again, by the author, is for the audience there to realize and for us today to realize that they worship a God in Jesus who is one of us. Who's one of us. Not one of us in nature. Again, we just remem remembered that, right? He's fully human and fully divine. We are only fully human, right? But he is one of us in his nearness and in his relatability, and in his accessibility. And we see this, this desire on the part of mankind. Why is there a trend in sports for coaches and managers to be former players? Well, because the current players want to hear from someone who has been in the trenches, who has been injured and knows what it's like to rehabilitate, who has been booed by crowds and knows what it looks like to be resilient, who has won, who has lost, who can relate from experience, not just head knowledge. Why is there a growing trend in politics even today for candidates with no prior experience? Why is it a growing trend in politics? Because we want someone like us. We don't, we don't want someone in the ivory tower. 
We don't want someone who just has a degree in poli-sci, but's never lived our lives, right? We want someone who can relate to us. We want someone who knows what it's like to be one of us. When receiving counsel in your life, why do you look for someone with real-world experience? Because again, you don't just want head knowledge, you want time-tested wisdom. Well, here the author reminds us as he closes that whatever suffering you must endure in this life for your faith, whatever suffering you must endure in this life for the gospel, whatever you must give up for the sake of the gospel, the one thing you can never give up is your hope. You never give up your hope because we're told here Jesus himself knows. He knows. Jesus himself suffered and yet persevered. God didn't give us a theological lecture. He didn't give us a theological theory. He didn't give us an abstract philosophy. He gave us himself. God himself entered in. He knows. He knows what it's like to be human, and yet he was faithful. And even when we are not, even when we stumble and are faithless, he atoned for that too so that we can look to him. And again, instead of despairing, we can get back up again in his mercy and continue to follow after him once more. Jesus knows. He knows. That's what the author wants us to hear. Christ himself said in the Gospel of John, Behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. From the world you will have trouble. But take heart. Take heart. For I've overcome the world, he says. As the liberating trailblazer, as your merciful high priest, as your sympathetic helper, as the better Adam, the better Moses, the better older brother, Christ says, I've overcome the world. We'll close with this. Another song today that I think captures it well. It's actually called He Knows. He Knows by Jeremy Camp, and it says this, and this will be our closing refrain, a, a poetic reflection, if you will, on the truth of Hebrews 2. It says this, All the bitter, weary ways, endless striving day by day, you barely have the strength to pray in the valley low. And how hard your fight has been, how deep the pain within. Wounds that no one else has seen, hurts too much to show. All the doubt you're standing in between, and all the weight that brings you to your knees, he knows. Every hurt and every sting, Jesus has walked the suffering. He knows. Let your burdens come undone, lift your eyes up to the one who knows. We may faint and we may sink, feel the pain and near the brink, but the dark begins to shrink when you find the one who knows. The chains of doubt that held you in between one by one are breaking free. He knows. Every hurt and every sting, 
He has walked the suffering. He knows. Let your burdens come undone. Lift your eyes to the one who knows. For every time you feel forsaken, every time you feel alone, he is near to the brokenhearted. Every tear, Jesus knows. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for coming down to us in Christ. We thank you that when we ran from you, you ran after us. We ran into the darkness and insisted we could find the light on our own, that we are the light perhaps. You ran after us. You ran into the darkness, the light of the world. Father, thank you for reconciling us, for forgiving us, for saving us, and for continuing to walk alongside of us every day and every season of our lives. Lord, would you overcome our darkness and doubts once again with your grace? And Lord, would we not be people of despair, but people of doxology, people who praise you and look to you and know that we have one who suffered. We have one who was tempted and yet was without sin, namely Christ. And he is ours by faith. So again, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. Bless us afresh, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen.